Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 20? And while you're doing that, kids ages 3 and 4, uh, up to and including kindergarten, you can make your way to the back. Uh, and uh, Miss Sarah will actually take you to your classroom this morning. John chapter 20, we're going to read the first 18 verses. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are still a couple on the back table back there. I would feel, feel free at this moment to go grab one, and you'll find this morning's sermon text on page 1077 in that Bible. And if those Bibles go, there are some more on the table or under the offering box in the back. As we always say, it's good for you to see the words that I'm about to read in front of you. Uh, as, as we go through our time together, it's far more enjoyable for you to see the things that I'm about to talk about in front of you so that you, one, may know that it's not me who's making these things up, uh, but these are the inspired words of God uh, written down and recorded for our benefit over 2,000 years ago. So it's not me who's saying these things, it is God, but then also it's good for you because uh, because just to see the things in front of you, the way in which God has inspired these things, not just the words on the page, but even the phrases and the terms, everything that is part of this passage that we're reading this morning, God intended, again, so that we might benefit here, even in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2023, um, a couple thousand years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20, again, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 18 this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in its own place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. At the heart of this passage is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that we as as believers uh, understand is a real physical reality. Um, But before I became a Christian, I think I even had some kind of categories for the resurrection of Jesus. I believed that it was true, although I didn't have saving faith. Uh, It was part of my upbringing in the sense that I was always around it at Easter time or throughout the year, the calendar year. Uh, But it was somewhat of a foregone conclusion. But I want to say to you this morning as we approach this passage, don't think of this as unremarkable because we're tempted to think about what we just read as unremarkable. And the fact that we uh, have assumed the reality of the resurrection so much that we may even pay lip service to it and think about it very, uh, very, uh, almost glibly, but not in a way that is designed here. This is designed to be earth-shattering. It's designed for us to say, wait, what now? How is it that Jesus, who was just crucified in chapter 19, is now alive. And so don't let your familiarity with this text cause you to not understand just how important and how earth-shattering and how radical what we just read is. Because out of the heart of this passage is the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, again, we looked at two weeks ago, was crucified and buried at the end of John chapter 19. And here, again, in the chapter 20, we see that the tide has turned. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And Mary comes to the tomb and she finds out that Jesus isn't there. The central idea of what's going on here is, in fact, the resurrection. Jesus is alive, and Mary Magdalene sees him. Jesus is alive, and Peter and John witness an empty tomb. Mary shares with the rest of the disciples that Jesus Jesus is alive, and that she saw him face to face. These 18 verses establish that Jesus is alive, and the rest of what we see here in John's gospel from the second half of of, uh, of John chapter 20 into chapter 21. Uh, it's designed to leave us with no doubt that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus will again appear to all of the disciples. Thomas will see and touch the wounds of the risen Christ. He is real, physical, and he has risen from the dead. Jesus will eat breakfast. He will eat fish on the shore with the disciples. Um, He will have breakfast with them, and in that time, Peter will be fully restored. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to as many as more than 500 people in the 40 days before his ascension, between here and his his ascension. This is designed to leave us with no doubt that Jesus is, in fact, alive, that he has been raised bodily a resurrected body and it ascended into heaven that he is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand even at this very moment. But, like we've seen in previous chapters, we learn so much from the characters who are engaging with Jesus. In this passage, it's no different. 
This is primarily about the resurrection, and we should not miss that part, but how those around Jesus engage with Jesus. We've seen this in previous chapters in 18 and 19, the cold skepticism of Pilate, or how the Jews are threatened by Jesus, or how Peter makes three denials. How far are they willing to follow Jesus, Jesus' disciples? Peter shows us that a handful of questions cause him to deny Jesus. Part of what makes chapters 18 through 21, which is really this unit, this narrative portion of John's gospel, the end of Jesus' life in the crucifixion and then the resurrection, what makes this so brilliant narratively is that what it operates as for us is a mirror that we hold up and see ourselves in. We are called to, in these chapters, John's 18 through 21, to examine ourselves. And so we have to continue to ask questions of ourselves as we look at these passages. Are you skeptical that Jesus can do what he really promises that he would do? Are you skeptical that Jesus will fulfill his promises? Do you believe that Jesus can really, as he has said he would do, bring you to the Father? Do you believe that Jesus can really make good on the promise of eternal life for all who believe? Or are you threatened by Jesus? Some of us are threatened by Jesus. Do you believe that you truly owe Jesus your allegiance as king? Or does he operate as a threat to you? As the one who is ruler of your own life? Or do you believe that Jesus is only one option among many? Designed to make you happy, but only on your terms? Are there limits on how far you're willing to follow Jesus before you'll deny him? We say things like, I know Jesus told me to love my neighbor and to love my wife and to submit to my husband and disciple and discipline my children and to love others in the local church and to do everything without grumbling or complaining, to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth and lots more. But I'm not really into all of those things. There's a limit before I will deny Jesus and what he says that I ought to do. I'm happy to love my wife and I'm happy to love others, but I'll do it with a little bit of grumbling and complaining and I won't be always happy about it. That's my limit. Friends, these chapters are a mirror. They're a mirror for us to hold up, to look at ourselves and to see where these people are struggling where they fall into sin, where also do we travel the same road? These contrasting characters show us ourselves. This morning's text, as we've seen Pilate and we've seen Peter and others, the Jews in particular, the Jewish religious leadership, throughout chapters 18, 19. Now in chapter 20, we see a couple of characters who we've seen already and one who we've, who's gotten a brief mention. Let's revisit these three characters. So our time this morning, what I want to do is the three characters who are engaging with Jesus or with the empty tomb at the very least, these are going to guide our time together. 
And I want you to take note of their devotion to Jesus. This is what we are supposed to see here in these 18 verses. So the three individuals are Peter, Simon Peter, John, the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John, and Mary Magdalene, who dominates the majority of this text. She gets most time here. So let's start with, let's start with Peter. Let's start with uh, the Apostle Peter. We know that Peter here, when these events are unfolding, Peter is at odds with Jesus. He is not on good terms. If we put ourselves in Peter's shoes just for a second, Jesus has been crucified, but Peter has abandoned Jesus. He has the last thing that happened uh, that we know about is his denial of Jesus. And Peter has gotten literally everything after John chapter 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer. In this narrative, this portion, and really throughout the Gospels, everything that Peter does is wrong. He gets it wrong. The moments leading up to his best friend's death, he gets literally everything wrong. He cuts off a guy's ear in the garden and gets rebuked for it. He denies Jesus out of fear, knowing full well that Jesus has told him he would deny him three times. And then Jesus is publicly executed, and the opportunity for reconciling this relationship appears to be gone. Can you imagine if the last words to a loved one were hurtful to them and there was no chance to reconcile? No chance to say that you're sorry? This is the position that Peter is in. Oftentimes in premarital or marital counseling, we'll talk, I'll use this as an example. Uh, conflict in relationships, the nature of conflict is disruption of relationship. So we all have relationships with people in this room, uh, and, but we also have relationships to objects. A relationship doesn't necessarily need to, uh, to mean exclusively a person. For example, I have a relationship to this, this pulpit in that it's here. It's right here. I'm east of this, this pulpit. But if I go here, then I'm south of the, the pulpit. And if I go to the parking lot, then I'm south of the pulpit. But if I go to the parking lot, then, then there's an issue. Uh, because I can't really see this, this pulpit. And I might be in the parking lot and say, I'm south of the pulpit, but in the time that I have to walk out the door, someone might grab it, take it out, throw it in the back of their Honda Civic, and drive down the road as fast as they can, in which case I'm in conflict to this piece of physical reality. I thought I was south, but I'm actually now, if they're headed south on 3rd Avenue, I'm actually north of it. That puts me in conflict. That's why when we talk about uh, reconciling interpersonal relationships, oftentimes we say things like, I need to know where you stand on this issue. I don't know exactly where we are in relationship to one another, and therefore we have conflict. So they need to be brought back into, uh, into harmony with one another. Where do we stand on this issue? 
Where does Peter stand in relation to Jesus? Which is a devastating spot to be in. Peter never gets to talk to Jesus again. And he's no doubt in complete turmoil over the reality of what transpired the last few days. And a few days later, he knows he has to find a way to move on with this burden. The burden of being unreconciled to a dear friend with no opportunity to restore the relationship. But now in our text, Mary Magdalene runs up to Jesus. Look at verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter and the other disciple, John the writer of this gospel is the other disciple here, run to the empty tomb to see for themselves the tomb is in fact empty. How is this even possible? We get no more insight into Peter in this passage, but if we're in Peter's shoes still, this means a glimmer of hope for a restoration of relationship. Brothers and sisters, this points to us to a really important truth. The report of an empty tomb means there's hope for you to be reconciled to God. The report of an empty tomb means that there is hope for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus is our great high priest, and that means he mediates between us and God. He intercedes for us. If, what that means is if we are at odds with God, Jesus makes us right with the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is our intermediary. He is our intercessor. He is our great high priest. But not if he's dead. If Peter found Jesus' body in the tomb, if Mary came to him and said, I don't know where he is, and he ran to the tomb and then Jesus was still there, and if you watch some stupid History Channel special that says, We found the bones of Jesus, then you are at odds with God. There is no hope for you to be reconciled to God. Why? Because it would mean that the power of death is greater than Jesus. How is Jesus going to make intercession for you when death is bigger than him. But Jesus defeated death on the cross, and he stripped death of its power. An empty tomb confirms it. The ins- this ensures that Jesus is the Savior, the one through whom all the Father gave to Jesus, would come to the Father. Not one would be lost. Paul in Romans 5 writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Friends, if you're here this morning and you believe that restored relationship and reconciliation with God is impossible, the empty tomb says otherwise. 
Through Jesus' death, your sin is paid for and you are given the righteousness of Christ. Through Jesus' resurrection, you have assurance that death is no longer a viable threat. Come to Christ and be reconciled to God. The tomb was empty. There is no one here this morning who cannot come to Jesus and be restored to right relationship with God. There is no one here who cannot come to Jesus and be restored to right relationship with God. But if you go anywhere other than Jesus, you will not be. The empty tomb stands as a as a clear picture that there is hope for you to be reconciled to God. There was hope for Peter to be reconciled to Jesus. Look at, then we see John. Not much is said about John here. He's the one who wrote this book, but he puts himself into the scene. He's briefly mentioned, and he's not mentioned by name, uh, but it's nearly universally agreed that the one, the other disciple uh, that is mentioned here, uh, Simon Peter went out in verse 3 with the other disciple, verse 2, Simon Peter and the other disciple. It's universally agreed that the other disciple here is in fact John, the writer of this gospel. So John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. If you remember back the scene during the crucifixion in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this is John, the disciple who he loved. And all the way back in chapter 13, verse 23 as well, he refers to himself around the table as the disciple that Jesus loves. These instances in John's gospel are designed to remind us that John was there. That what is recorded here is a first-hand account of what happened. John is not simply a bystander. He is recording and writing these words as one who had a very close and intimate relationship with Jesus. John, by calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved, or here the other disciple, is letting us into the fact that he knows Jesus really, really well. He knows Jesus really, really well. And what transpires in John's gospel is being told from an eyewitness perspective. Eyewitness testimony is one of, if not the most, reliable forms of evidence. John uses the term witness to describe himself and others and what believers are called to do throughout John's gospel 40 times. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the word 12 times combined. One commentator even points out that John's gospel nearly reads like a lawyer's brief. It's full of legal language. Because John wants us to know that he is an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life and here, his resurrection. You'll remember back in verse 35 of chapter 19, John goes to great lengths to tell us about his involvement. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 
John is saying, I am telling the truth. I was there and I saw it with my own eyes. Now, that was a first-hand account of the death of Jesus, and now we get a first-hand account of the resurrection of Jesus. John outruns Peter. John was younger than Peter, so that makes sense. But Peter goes in first. And what they find is, again, not an ex- a scene that you would expect. Now, we expect it because we're so familiar with this, but it's not a scene that a first-century reader of John's Gospel who knew nothing about Jesus would expect. You wouldn't expect the tomb to be empty. You wouldn't expect that the linen cloths would be there. Verse 7 You wouldn't expect that the cloth that was lying over the face of Jesus would be folded up. This does not sound like the work of a grave robber, a very considerate grave robber. But I don't know many grave robbers, but it doesn't seem like their MO to fold up things and leave them nicely. Verse 8 tells us, though, what we need to know and what John wants to emphasize for us in his eyewitness account. John goes in following Peter, and then we are told that he sees and he believes. Look at right at the end of verse 8. I'll just read the verse. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. The tomb was empty, and an eyewitness account is given here in John chapter 20, so that you and I would believe. So that we would be brought into the belief that John has when he witnesses the empty tomb. Believe that the de- that believing that death was defeated through Jesus' death and that Jesus is alive. And when we read the account of the resurrection, question for you is do you really think about the claim that's being made? The real claim, the claim that is being made here, a dead man now alive from death. It's alive. John didn't yet know that Jesus was to be raised according to the scriptures. That's what it says in verse 9. But it would all come together for them in the next few days. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.4 that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Don didn't yet understand that element of what was going on, but he believed that Jesus was alive. Are you tempted to believe that death is the end of the road? Friends, it's not. If you have an eternal soul, you do. It will either go on to eternal life when this mortal life ends, to be raised with Christ when he returns, physically, for all of eternity, or you will be raised to what Jesus says earlier in John's Gospel, to eternal destruction apart from God. For those who are joined to Christ by faith, physical death is not to be feared. For those who are joined to Christ by faith, physical death is not to be feared. Death is a defeated enemy. Like John, look at the empty tomb. That's the evidence. The eyewitness account. Believe like John that Jesus is alive. And know that you will be raised like Jesus was on the last day. The tomb was empty and an eyewitness account is given so that you and I would believe. Now, 
Peter and John don't stick around, though. They see the empty tomb, but then they go back to their homes, we're told in verse 10. But the one character who sticks around, she's the one who gets there first and discovers the empty tomb, but she sticks around in verse 11 is Mary Magdalene. And through the centuries, a lot has been made or speculated about Mary Magdalene. What's the importance of her? She gets a few mentions throughout the Gospels, and a lot of people have tried to fill in the blanks. Um, you'll remember Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code silly book, but that the uh, unless you like puzzles, that's probably the cool part. But then the rest was like that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, which is absolute lunacy. We have literally no evidence that any of that is true. There are many other things that are speculated about Mary Magdalene, but, but not much evidence is given biblically about it. John records Mary as the one who initially interacts with Jesus post-resurrection. Why? Why her? It's not because of the speculated importance that has come down for the last several centuries in church history. Rather, it's quite the opposite. Mary Magdalene is a no one. She is essentially a no one. First of all, she's a woman in the ancient world, and a woman's testimony would have been taken very lightly. Peter and John have regard for her, and so they go to examine the empty tomb. But she really doesn't have much credibility because of her station in life. She doesn't really seem to be anyone of consequence outside of, again, being referenced a handful of times in the fourth gospel. We hear about her in chapter 19, in verse 25. She is with the mother of Jesus at the cross. But we also know from Luke's gospel, the eighth chapter, that she was possessed at one point by seven demons. Luke doesn't record that event where Jesus casts out the demons. We know that he did, but the event itself isn't told to us. He only just tells us that it happened. Why does the risen Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene first? That passage in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 8, probably gives us a lot of of insight. Mary knew what it was like to be trapped in sin and delivered from that sin. Spiritual oppression, like that of demon possession, is the result of sin. An individual can open him or herself up to spiritual oppression by indulging in habitual ongoing sin. Paul tells the Corinthians that their unforgiveness opens them up to spiritual oppression. Judas indulged greed, and in the upper room we are told in John's gospel that Satan entered into Judas. Although we don't know the nature of Mary Magdalene's sin, we're told that she had seven demons. And seven is significant because it shows a really serious level of spiritual oppression. Something that she could not be delivered from by herself. It's serious sin that leads to serious spiritual oppression. Our world doesn't take the spiritual realm seriously at all. 
But friends, God's word makes it very clear. If you're nursing sin or you're giving yourself over to sin entirely, you are in dire straits. And the, the, uh, the solution is to repent and to run to Christ. Trust in Christ. You cannot love Christ and love your sin or even ignore it. Acknowledge your sin and do it now. This is why Mary is given a place of prominence here in John's Gospel. Why she has the privilege of seeing Jesus first. Her devotion came through great deliverance. She was in those dire straits. Her sin had led her to serious spiritual oppression in the form of seven demons. She knew what it was like to have no hope. So she hangs back at the tomb. Peter and John leave. Mary stays. She knew the disgusting nature of sin and its effects. She knew the slavery. She knew the oppression. She, could kn- she knew that she could never be free from those things alone apart from the work of Jesus in her life. And Jesus showed up sometime before Luke chapter 8 and delivered her. He set her free. Friend, the point of all of this is that if you don't think your sin is a big deal, you'll never think Jesus is a big deal. If you don't think your sin is a big deal, you will never think Jesus is a big deal. You'll yawn and look at your watch because we've been here for a while. You'll go home and everything that's been said, everything that's been sung, everything that's been read this morning will quickly fall out of your mind's eye. You'll ignore your Bible. You'll ignore other Christians. You will pursue personal happiness above all else. You'll wonder why some people take this Christianity thing so seriously. In fact, you'll miss the whole point of Christianity altogether. You'll think to yourself, well, I need to be saved. But how do I do that? How do I get reconciled to God? Well, I'll be a good person. I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll try harder. The very least, the very least, That's what your life will give evidence that you believe. And in fact, your life may give no evidence that you have any relationship with God and will will give no evidence that he even exists. If you don't think your sin is a big deal, you'll never believe Jesus is a big deal. If your sin is just a few little slip-ups, If you think that your sin is just a little mistake or two that you made that one time six or seven years ago. If you're able to dismiss your sin with a wave of a hand and appeal to your good intentions, then Jesus will mean nothing to you. But this is not the case for Mary. She stayed at the tomb. Because she knew that Jesus had delivered her out of the most impossible of situations. She desired to honor the one to whom she owed so much. The God that delivered his people from Egypt, drowning Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea, this is the God who had delivered her from spiritual oppression, from her relentless sin. And Jesus appears to her in John's Gospel, and her devotion is rewarded by seeing Jesus clearly. 
If you're here this morning and you don't see Jesus clearly, if you wonder who he is and what he's about, consider that you may be taking your sin lightly. Would you pray this afternoon as you go from here, Jesus, reveal to me where I am indulging my sin, where I am clinging to sin, where I should be clinging to you. And then read God's word and ask the Holy Spirit, like King David does in Psalm 19, to discern your errors. It is then, and only then, that you will see clearly. Your eyes will be opened. And like Mary, you will say at the end of this passage, when she goes to the disciples and announces that he is alive, I have seen the Lord. The empty tomb is a promise that you can see and know Jesus and have a real and eternal relationship with him. Friends, as we move to a conclusion this morning, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we feel hopeless this morning? Chapter 19 ends with a whole lot of hopelessness. And again, since we are familiar with the resurrection account, We might not feel that hopelessness at the end of chapter 19. But you have to feel the hopelessness in order to feel just how radical chapter 20 is in the resurrection account. And what I would appeal to you to do is to go and allow just the hope of this passage to wash over you. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Let the hope of this passage wash over you. And then, consider the three characters that we've talked about this morning. And here's a few final thoughts. The first is this. As long as there's breath in your lungs, restored relationship with God is possible. As long as there's breath in your lungs, restored relationship with God is possible possible. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me ask you this question. What's preventing you? What is preventing you? Is it because you think that he can't forgive the things that you've done? Is it because you think that there's a gap that's been opened up too wide? How could God love me? But there's good news and the answer to those questions is this. The tomb is empty. The sin that you think is too great, it does in fact lead to death, but Jesus defeated death on the cross. And his resurrection proves that death is a defeated enemy. And what you need to do is simple. It's leave your sin and come to Christ. Leave your sin and come to Christ. That's it. You think that your unchecked hate for people in your life or your mistreatment of others or your lying slanderous tongue or your sexual immorality or your idolatry or whatever it is can separate you from the love of Christ. The answer is no. Leave it and come to Christ. Set the sin behind you. Trust Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Trust Christ for the new heart that you need to hate those sins and trust Christ for the strength to never be enslaved to those sins again. Friends, if that's you, if you would like to understand how to become a Christian, would you please come talk to me? There's going to be something inside of you that says, don't do that. Don't listen. Come to Christ. You're here for a reason. 
It's God's mercy to you that you are sitting here in this room. Don't resist and be hardened in your unbelief any longer. Don't talk yourself out of it. Come to Christ. Leave your sin and come to Christ. If you're here this morning and you think, I'm a Christian and I'm doing pretty well, but if you've trusted in something other than the person of Jesus Christ for that restored relationship with God, then know that you don't have it. You do not have relationship, restored, reconciled relationship with God if you're trusting something other than the person of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Stop trusting in self. Stop trusting in things that aren't Jesus. The only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. You may be nursing sin. You may be all out indulging sin this morning, and it's because you don't have right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Again, you're here for a reason. It's God's mercy to you. You will in these moments think, nah, not a big deal. Eternity hangs in the balance. As long as there's breath in your lungs, restored relationship with God is possible. The second concluding thought, though, is this. Be strengthened in your belief. Brothers and sisters, if you've been joined to Christ by faith, don't treat this resurrection account as something you've read a thousand times. It's given to you so that you would believe. John walked into the tomb and he believed. He saw and he believed. And it's not just belief intellectually. But it's belief. It's so that you would believe with all that you are. Your whole being. Not just this intellectual assent to something. If Jesus was dead and buried and didn't walk out of the tomb, then here's my invitation to you. Do what you want. Why are you here? Make your personal happiness the priority. Store up treasures on earth. Covet your neighbor's wife, their kids, their cars, their house, and grumble all about it endlessly. If Jesus is dead and buried, then do that. But Jesus is alive. An eyewitness testimony is given by John so that you would believe like he believed. And so that your whole life would change. And if you're unchanged by the truth of the resurrection, then you don't believe it. If you can go about your life like it was prior to learning about the resurrection of Jesus, then you haven't believed it. I'm concerned that there's a number of you in here that don't actually believe that Jesus is alive. You'll give lip service to it in a few weeks at Easter when you say, Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's risen. You shout it out. But can you actually point to evidence in your life that Jesus is alive? And genuinely ask yourself the question. Ask those around you. Ask your spouse or your kids or your community group. Does my life give evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If not, pray to the one who loves to give good things to those who ask. Father, cause my life to give genuine evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. You should be like, what is that evidence? Yeah, but what are you talking about? 
Friends, it's simple obedience to what God commands us in his word, to love your neighbor, to love your wife, to submit to your husband, to disciple and discipline your children, to love others within the local church, do everything without grumbling or complaining, to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth. These are just basics. These are simple things. This is not a comprehensive list that I've given you this morning. Your job is to now go from this place and to look at God's word and say, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to obey the simple commands of Scripture. The reason you say, I don't want to go to the Bible and I don't want to see what God has for me and I don't want to see the basic things when we try to make things complicated and try to begin to shift things around in our minds, in our hearts, so that we don't, we're just kicking the can down the road. The things that I said just a moment ago, you can all do today. In the next 15 minutes, you can go love your neighbor, love your wife, submit to your husband, disciple and discipline your children, love the local church, and do everything without grumbling or complaining. You can do all of those things. Like, now. And you say... And you say, it's like, oh, I got to get to know this, this a little bit better before I can do those things. No, n- the answer is now. We read the account here in John 20, and we are designed to be strengthened in our belief. Belief that what God has commanded you to do is so much better than anything that you could come up with by yourself. Be strengthened in your belief. Do you believe that what God has commanded you to do in his word is so much better than anything you can come up with by yourself? Final concluding thought this morning. Take your sins seriously to see Jesus as a great Savior. If we don't take our sins seriously, then what is Jesus to us? Last summer, one of my sons almost drowned. Um, Levi Taylor saved him, pulled him out. The only thing I could do in the moment was to shake his hand and say thank you. Because I didn't, the weight of the situation didn't actually like hit me. Levi took immediate action before I knew what was going on. Could have lost my son and I'll never not be grateful to Levi. If Levi picked my son out of an inch of water and told me that he saved him from drowning, would I have the same feeling? Probably not. If he said, hey, I saved your kid from drowning, I'd say, like, nah, you'd have been fine. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You're delusional. Friends, this is exactly how some of you treat Jesus. You think he's plucked you out of an inch of water that hasn't even covered your big toe. When in reality, you were drowning. You were not just drowning, you were dead, and he saved you. But you aren't really convinced that you really needed saving because you, your intentions are good and you have basically a good heart. You think your sin wasn't that big of a deal. You could have stopped whenever you wanted. You could have paid for it with a few good deeds and, again, the right intentions. And since this is your mindset, you think little of Jesus and you think little of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, seeing Jesus for who he is, like Mary Magdalene sees Jesus here in this passage, means that you have understood that apart from Jesus, you are dead. 
already drowned. Sin drowned you in the moment you were conceived. You were dead. But God made you alive through Jesus Christ. And until you believe that with your heart, you will think little of Jesus and you will love life loosely. You will love that which he has given you loosely. Because you will think, I could do it myself. And you will trust in self. But when you realize the gravity of your sin, and the immensity of Jesus' saving act on your behalf, then you will live life fully devoted, loving him because of the thing that he gave you that you could not give to yourself in full allegiance to King Jesus. And you, like Mary, will know and see the Lord. Let's pray. God, your word comes to us in moments where we are weak and frail. God, where we are tempted to trust in things that are not you. God, would you, even in these next few moments as we respond by singing, God, would you stir in men and women an affection for you? Because they see, like Mary saw, the impossible, the dire straits that each and every one of us were in, and recognize that God, through Jesus Christ, that you have made us alive. God, would none here in this room believe or walk away believing that restored relationship with you is possible? Is impossible, but rather that it is fully possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. That the tomb is empty, and therefore we can have right relationship restored with you. Even as Peter is restored, so can we, for those who trust in Christ and repent of our sins, be restored. God, we thank you. May we give evidence of the resurrection in our life as we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.